Life Audio. John wrote this book for seven churches in the first century, and it was to them and for them. Now, here's the big point the book of Revelation was timely in the sense that it spoke in its day, in its way, to accomplish its purposes. But it becomes timeless. Because it is so profoundly insightful about the problem that John thought he had to address. I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. And after a quick word from our sponsors, my guest, Scott McKnight, and I will be back to talk about a new way you can read Revelation. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Scott McKnight is a world-renowned speaker, writer, professor, and equipper of the church. He is a recognized authority on the historical Jesus, early Christianity, and the New Testament. His books have been translated into Chinese, Korean, Russian, and Portuguese. He is the author of The Jesus Creed, The Blue Parakeet, The King Jesus Gospel, And now, with the book we're going to be talking about today, Revelation for the Rest of Us, as well as numerous commentaries that I have referred to frequently in my teaching life. And he is now also writing a 16-volume series of reflections called The Everyday Bible Study. And one of those Everyday Bible Studies is going to also be on the book of Revelation. So, After you devour this book on Revelation, you can pick up that Everyday Bible Study, which will be out in a few months. So you can find more details in the show notes on that. Well, Scott, thank you so much for making some space to be with us today. Well, thank you, Jody. Good to be with you. So let's just dive in. Revelation can be confusing. It has been for me. And listen, I've taken seminary level courses in eschatology. Now, Because Revelation is confusing, it sadly rarely makes it into my Bible reading rotation, if I'm going to be honest. (laughs) And so (laughs) I really appreciated reading your book. It was eye-opening for me. And what I realized is perhaps I've been reading Revelation all wrong. So I would love for you to start there and talk through, well, let's first talk about how we've been taught to read Revelation, especially in light of things like the Left Behind series. So Just just start unpacking kind of that old way of reading Revelation. Well, um, I've met a lot of people like you who 
in their daily Bible readings or their weekly Bible readings, they would not schedule time with the book of Revelation because, um, you know, they they watched a movie in high school, you know, and they have seen, they've read some of the Left Behind. Maybe they read some Hal Lindsey, and they found it almost terrorizing and um, a book that generated one argument after another with pastors and friends and theologians and books that they'd read. And so it is it is confusing for many people to read the book because in the approach that you're talking about, there's all these speculations and debates about who in the modern world is doing what in the book of Revelation. Yep. The most recent person people are asking about is Vladimir Putin. Is he the Antichrist, the beast? And is he beast number one or beast number two, you know, in Revelation 13? So, yes, that is. And the old approach basically is sees the whole book of Revelation as the future, way off in the future for John. So that would mean something like almost 2,000 years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something like that. Uh, not quite, but. 1960 years, and that it didn't really pertain in that sense to the first century, but it's all about the future, and it was predictions and all these images, the beasts in Revelation 13, the woman in Revelation chapter 12, the judgments of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. We always wonder what the thunders are, but we we don't ever get those. John had to seal those up and not tell anybody. <laughs> and all these judgments, uh, we kind of wonder what when they're going to happen. And then there's a question about the rapture, and then there's a question about the millennium. And before long, it's all speculation. Mm-hmm. And I really think, now when, when when you say the old approach, I think a lot of people are still using this approach. Yes, in fact, I agree. I find uh, when I speak in churches uh, to lay people that, uh, even if I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, if they bring it up, they will assume that approach of spec. what I call speculation. It's all prediction of something specific that will happen in the future. So beast number one is actually somebody, and beast number two is actually another somebody who is actually predicted, and God knows who it is. John probably didn't, but he at least saw the vision. And we might be able to figure it out. That's that's the sort of approach that mm-hmm. people have. Uh, that approach really is quite 20th century. Uh, end of the 19th century, uh, it became popular, and it passed into the church. And what I've often told my students and audiences is whoever designed this approach, it's called dispensationalism, and uh, the good folks in Dallas all know about dispensationalism. It is an extremely effective approach to reading the Bible uh, because it has impregnated so many churches and so mm-hmm. many uh, lay people. They can figure out how to read the Bible from this. And the system seems to be really clear, so people believe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has impacted even international policy from Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, they have followed some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate you clarifying old. Actually, it's actually a new approach based on what you just said. <laughs> it's every day for many yeah. people. Yes. Yeah, yes. And it's not old in that it's done. 
it is still very much present in our uh, reading of scripture. So for those who the word dispensational doesn't really mean anything to them, give us a brief definition of what exactly is dispensational theology. It depends who you ask and what year. (laughs) Uh, but l- let me let me give three points. Okay, I'm a professor, so we give points. <laughs> At one level, and this this is only really known to people uh, who have been educated in dispensationalism. Otherwise, it just doesn't come up. There are two plans of God in the world: one with an earthly plan with Israel, and one with a heavenly plan, and that's with the church. And God was dealing with Israel, is now dealing with the church and will deal with Israel in the future. When the church is vacated, raptured, then God will deal with Israel again, and then he'll bring them back together, and there'll be one happy family sort of kind of thing. Now, there's debates about that. Um, And frankly, I only hear about this from specialists. The second thing is it's a how to read the Bible in sort of a, you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and there are seven basic periods where God deals with people in a specific way. Say, with the ear of Moses, it was with the law. Mm-hmm. Um, in the New Covenant, it's with grace, it's with Jesus, it's with you know the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call the the atonement of Christ. All right, so that's it's secondly, then it's a it's a way of studying the Bible. But third, it's sort of a collection of conclusions about what's going to happen in the future that can be broken down into God dealing with the church, then there's a rapture, then there's a tribulation, then there's a like a second coming, the millennium, and then there's a final judgment, and then there's eternity. That's the sort of approach that you would call is dispensational. All right, so three different things that it could mean. Yeah. And I hope that's I hope my friend at Dallas, Daryl Bach, would say I described it accurately. <laughs> well, we can ask him. <laughs> yeah. Probably not. Probably not today. But I want to circle back to dispensational theology in a minute. But before we do that, I want you to talk about how you believe we should be reading Revelation instead of through this dispensational lens of trying to figure out what all of these things mean for our future. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jody. It's a good question. And that's sort of what the whole book is about, reading Revelation for the rest of us. I wrote it with my um, graduate assistant at the time, Cody Matchett, who's now working on a PhD on virtue and character. Okay, so I think the, the problem with dispensationalism is that it leads to speculation about who in the book of Revelation is doing what in the world, and it takes us right out of the picture, because many people think they won't be there. So who cares? Mm. And I think that that is a fundamental mistake, because John wrote this book for seven churches in the first century, and it was to them and for them. Now, here's the big point. The book of Revelation was timely, in the sense that it spoke in its day, in its way, to accomplish its purposes. But it becomes timeless because it is so profoundly insightful about the problem that John thought he had to address. And here's the problem. 
the problem John describes as a whore, a prostitute called Babylon. And she, the city of Rome, Babylon, is full of corruption and is doing two things, oppressing the church and bringing injustice in the world, and beginning, I call it Babylon creep, uh, it is creeping into the churches, into the seven churches. So the Mm -hmm. sins that John brings up in chapters 2 through 3, which are the so-called letters to the seven churches, the sins that he brings up are the sins of Babylon. So Babylon creep is the church being impacted by the presence of Babylon. What John does is he gives three categories for the Christian living when you live in Babylon, all right, and they're all with W's. I don't have them <laughs> quite this way in the book, but the first one is wisdom to discern the presence and the reality of Babylon. When you live in Babylon too long, it's like the color of water and you don't recognize Babylon. Mm-hmm. So we don't recognize corruptions in the United States if we're uber loyal to our party or to our government. Okay. And I don't just mean being a patriot. Okay. So we need wisdom. John provides wisdom to discern what Babylon is like in Revelation chapter 17 through 19. Secondly, he calls people to be witnesses. A witness is someone who has seen something, heard something, experienced something, and tells others about it. Hmm. In the book of Revelation, those people who have seen Jesus, heard Jesus, experienced Jesus, and tell others about it can experience oppression to the point that they're put to death, like Antipas in the seven churches. And in being put to death, the word we use is martyr, which comes from the word for witness. So the the word, the, the verb, martureo, to witness, and martus is the noun And that is to be a witness is to be someone whose body is put on the line for the sake of what they experienced about Jesus. So we need wisdom, and we need to be a witness, and third, we need to worship. The book of Revelation has some of the most beautiful songs, and John wrote these words, not not Handel when he wrote the Messiah, Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He, He has these songs, and there's debates among scholars, how many songs are in Revelation? Cody and I settled on there being nine, and we have them at the back of the book translated. And these songs are sprinkled, especially in those really difficult chapters, 6 through 19, when there's all these uh, judgments going on. And I believe John is teaching the church how to worship by watching what's going on in heaven and hearing what's going on in heaven. And when they learn to worship like this, they are formed spiritually to be people who can wisely discern the presence of Babylon, become witnesses of the Lamb, of Jesus, and in worshiping, they are formed to become dissidents and resistors of Babylon because they worship God, not beast one, not beast two, not the dragon, not Babylon. 
We're going to pause here for a quick break, and then we'll be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So I want to talk more about Babylon. And before we get there, I feel like we're putting a lot of pins in our conversation. Tell us about some of these main characters. You... You set it up almost like a playbill. Well, that is exactly what you call it with these camps of characters. And I, we don't have time to go into all of them, but but tell us about kind of the two camps that John yeah. is inviting us to choose to yeah. be a part of one or the other. Dave, Dave Mathewson is a professor at uh, Denver Seminary. And I think he had something about the drama of Revelation and about the characters. Chris and I went to a play uh Hamilton. It was so good. And I thought, well, that's, as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, that's that's what Revelation is. This is the playbill. And so I started thinking about the characters. The figures that are in the drama of the book of Revelation need to be spelled out. So the book of Revelation, it's very clear. There are two teams in Revelation, two sides. And a professor at Abilene Christian named Randy Harris said, this is all you need to know about Revelation. God's team wins. Choose your team. Don't be stupid. <laughs> and and he's and I, he's basically right. It's team lamb and team dragon. So the lamb and the dragon are at war, and this is exactly in the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the woman of the people of God versus the woman of Babylon. But she is opposed by the dragon who gets tossed down to earth because he gets defeated in heaven. And he goes after her. He loses because God protects her. And then uh, he goes after the the people of God, the church. So those are the two, uh, let's say, the two antagonists and protagonists in the book of Revelation. And then there are people like the dragon, which is Satan in the book of Revelation. Uh, A very common image in Jewish literature is to call Satan a dragon or a serpent. And then there's uh, beast number one and beast number two. Beast number two is also called the false prophet, sometimes not even called beast number two. They are agents of the dragon, 
who are operative in the dragon city called Babylon. And Babylon is John's language for Rome. And that's a very Jewish thing to do at the time that he is writing, because other people were calling Rome Babylon, other Jewish uh, writers in apocalyptic writings. So those are the main figures there. But I mean, there's all kinds of others that would be supporting them. There are armies that are going to line up against God. And then on on Team Lamb, of course, you have the Lamb, the Son of God. You have God. You have the seven spirits, which is unique to the gospel, to the Book of Revelation, uh, which is, I believe, John's language for the Holy Spirit. And then you have different witnesses. You have the twenty-four elders, who are probably the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve uh, apostles. And then you have uh, multitudes of people who are believers. You have some names of people who are believers in the book of Revelation. John is on this side, and Team Lamb is going to win the victory, and Team Dragon is going to lose. It's just like reading The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and I think it's it would be really good for people to suspend their attempts to read the book in order to predict something that's going on, and instead think of it in the the way they would read The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter, although it's a lot shorter than Harry Potter, and I haven't read one word of Harry Potter, so I'm I'm a loser on this one. <laughs> um, so I I think that understanding these characters and the drama that is unfolding can take away some of this goofiness of speculation and get us back to ask the question: What does John want the believers of Western Asia Minor to receive in listening to this letter when it was being read? And what he didn't want them to do was to spend their time speculating whether it was Vladimir Putin or not, but to figure out how to live better. Now, here's let me just point something out about speculation. The problem with the speculative approach is that they assume the text is predicting the person that they're speculating about. Let's say mm-hmm. they're predicting that someone is trying to figure out if Vladimir Putin is beast number one. That is wrong for this reason. Vladimir Putin might be beast number one, but so could someone else be beast number one. There are John, the writer of Revelation, probably the same writer of 1 John, says there are many antichrists. And so it is the mistake is thinking that this is only going to be one person, whereas many of the people who've picked on people, Stalin, Hitler, Mao Zedong, all these different people, you could say, mm-hmm. they fit the bill. They're anti- They're like the beast, and their cities are like Babylon. And that would have given us a discipleship that discerned with wisdom how to be witnesses and how to worship in that kind of world. So, so this is a perfect time to circle back to Babylon, because what you're saying is, Babylon is not this place that we need to keep our eyes peeled for to watch for the rebuilding of. It's actually a place that is present and has been present throughout the ages that we're called to live in wisdom, witness, and worship yes, that's <laughs> and, right. be, and be a part of. So what does that mean for us today? Like, how do we discern how to live in what could be considered Babylon today. 
I'm so happy that the publisher sent out copies of the book to like 50 people. And in it was a keychain, and the leather keychain had a little uh, slogan on it, Babylon is Timeless. So I love to carry my keychain now. All right, Mm -hmm. so Babylon is Timeless. I think what we need to see is that Babylon has been with the church the whole time. All 2,000 years, Babylon has been here. Babylon is the presence, is where the dragon gains a foothold in a political situation and tries to destroy human beings and tries to put them to death. So destruction and death are the primary goals of the dragon, the three Ds, dragon, destruction, and death. Okay, so... What we see is in reading Revelation 17, 18, and the first 10 verses of chapter 19 are characteristics of Babylon. And I think that what John teaches us, what is timeless, is for us to see the characteristics of Babylon then and see if they're characteristic now, because they are. They're as timeless as sin. They are as timeless as goodness uh, when we don't sin. So, There is a sense in which it's idolatrous, it's anti-God, and uh, secular, a militant secularism today, what Mike Bird calls secular, a militant secularism, is an attempt to push God off the stage in the American public discourse. There's opulence. I mean, the woman of Revelation 17 is dressed to the hilt. I mean, she has everything. Uh, and you don't see that about the woman of Revelation 12. There's an austerity about the woman of Revelation 12. Who's the woman of God? Babylon is not only anti-God or uh, idolatrous and opulent. It you know it lives in luxury. It's murderous. It puts to death the people of God, and it loves death. So you know I I hope I don't get in trouble with your audience, but. The gun culture that is so prevalent in the United States is Babylonian or Babylonish. It is, there's only one reason to have a gun, and that's to kill things. Right? I grew up hunting. Mm. Guns for hunting, to me, are fine. Uh, I actually sold my gun uh, to another New Testament professor's son long, long ago because I didn't want a gun in our house. But I think the obsession with guns in the United States is a sign, it's a mark of Babylon. The image, it is image conscious. Babylon, Rome, left its mark everywhere. Just as World War II participants wrote on walls everywhere, Kilroy was here. So in every city that you went to that had the imprint of Rome, there would be gods, goddesses, buildings, signs, things written in Latin to remind people that Rome owned this place. It was militaristic. Rome was one of the most efficient war machines and death machines that has ever been designed. And at that time, there was nothing like it. Mm-hmm. It was violent. I'm reading Josephus right now. Mm-hmm. He's describing the Jewish war. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a whole book on the, it's a long book on the Jewish war. And Rome was, they knew how to kill people. Yeah. And they knew how to win and dominate. That's Rome. There was economic exploitation. In uh, Revelation 18, there is an amazing description 
of what you could find on boats in the Mediterranean Sea that were being shipped from all four corners of the globe. I mean, some of that stuff was coming from India, cinnamon. Mm -hmm. Some of this stuff was coming from Spain. Some of it was coming from Africa. Some of it was coming from the Near East. Some of it was coming from Asia Minor, like olive oil, et cetera. So uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. So all this stuff is going to Rome, and it was by way of exploitation. They would capture cities, capture countries, mm. and in order to uh, exploit their resources. And then finally, this is the big one, is uh, Babylon is arrogant. The description is no one is ever going to conquer me, you know, mm. make Babylon great again. You know, this is this is the, <laughs> the very idea that it, yeah. it's that arrogance of yeah. domination that John criticizes because he thinks the way of the lamb is not the way of the dragon and the way of Rome and the way of Babylon. There's a different way to win. You don't win with a sword in your fist. You win mm -hmm. with the word sword coming out of the mouth that slays sin and death and destruction. Yeah, so thank you for describing all of that. You talk about how when we're reading Revelation, we should really get this sense that we're being called to, really, it's a discipleship tool, and you use yes. the word that we're we're being called to be dissident disciples. So tell us a little bit, tell us what you mean by that, How, which is how we're supposed to, to live in, because what you just described with Babylon, we are seeped in right now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. whether you've wanted to label it that or not, <laughs> this is this is reality as you've as you've pulled it out of scripture and we kind of lay it over the culture that we live in. How do we how do we walk in the way of Jesus in the midst of all of this? Exactly. This is what John wants us to be dissidents, but if we follow the Lamb. And our witnesses who worship the Lamb, we will have wisdom sufficiently to recognize the presence of Babylon and to recognize what I grew up, we grew up, I did, grew up calling it worldliness. You know, we didn't want to be worldly. We didn't want to be like the world. Well, the world is Babylon for John. John, that's how he describes worldliness. It's the way of Rome, the way of the dragon. So John wants us to spend so much time worshiping the Lamb and God, spending so much time meditating on, meditating on New Jerusalem, that when we get to Rome, we recognize the corruptions and the idolatries and the immoralities and the exploitation and the slaveries, and we say, that's not the way of the Lamb. And then we are challenged mm. as witnesses to say that I've experienced the Lamb, I know the way of the Lamb, and now I'm going to speak up and speak out against this, and I'm going to resist this in my world in which I live, in my home, in my church, in my neighborhood, in my community. And that's what I think John is calling disciples to do in the book of Revelation is to discern the presence of Babylon and to resist it as dissidents, that we will not go along with this. 
How many people today, Jody, are fed up with mm. the, let's just say, the divisiveness of mm. American discourse? I mm. think a lot of us are. But are, are we truly resisting it and becoming dissidents about it by pursuing a different way? Not simply saying, oh, Twitter's awful, or, you know, these political divisions are terrible. I've never seen America so divided. Yes, that's true. That's just analysis. That's diagnosis. That's discerning. But we are called to be a witness of the way of the Lamb, and that means to embody the way of the Lamb in how we relate to all this political discourse. And I think we can bring fresh waters of peace and joy and goodness into these conversations as a way of resisting the way of the dragon. So I want to talk about Revelation 21 real quick, because this is the passage that we meditated on. And it has always held just so much comfort for me because it gives me hope in the midst of living in the world that we do, that this is not the end of the story. And so I want to read it real quick. And then I'd love for you to just share with us some of the things that you see in this passage and Based on your understanding of Revelation, what what do these verses lead us to understand? So it's Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, and it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So Scott, how do you how do you read those verses in light of your reading of Revelation? Okay, it's a beautiful passage and I there's something so tranquil about this descending of New Jerusalem out of the heavens. So it's sort of like a fulfillment of the Lord's prayer, may your will be done on mm-hmm. earth as it is in heaven. This is this is it right here. Okay. So the first thing that I would say other than that the Lord's Prayer context, is Babylon had to be defeated before New Jerusalem could come. So this is the replacement of Babylon by New Jerusalem. Now, here's something really interesting. I know you only read through verse 4. Verse 5 tells us that everything is new. But then John measures New Jerusalem. It's 1,400 miles long, uh, wide, and high, which means it's almost the size of the Roman Empire. Mm. So it's as big as the Roman Empire, but a lot higher, which is cool. Like It's like uh, Genesis chapter 11 when they're trying to build their towers to heaven, and this is, this is actually mm-hmm. the one coming down. So... Um, it's a replacement. The second thing is, I love the word new. It's a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. The newness 
is not by, let's say, total elimination, but there's a continuity. The continuity theme is there will be 12 gates and 12 foundations. The 12 gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations are the 12 apostles. So there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's new. It's sort of new the way if you picked, if you were in 1955 and you were typing on a manual typewriter, a royal that was made out of iron, and you needed a four-poster desk to be able to hold it up, and someone said, I'm going to give you a new typewriter, and they put down an Apple Macintosh on your desk you would say this does everything that typewriter did, but it is so new. It's brand new. It's nothing like what I had before. But yet, it's the same interest in technology at a whole new level. I think that's what the newness is. The third thing that I would observe is I love this expression, there will be no more, you know, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That no more is such an important theme in the book of Revelation. From chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we have the martyrs in heaven crying out, how much longer? Mm. When will these things end? This is when they end. When New Jerusalem ends, there's no more tears because... All that they longed for and prayed for at the throne of God, for justice to come on in the world, for injustices to be eliminated, for evil to be eradicated, and for justice to be established, all those things are going to occur in the new Jerusalem. So it's a, re- it's a replacement of Babylon. It is totally new and yet not completely new, I guess. And then there'll be no more pain, no more death. <laughs> and if there's no more death, there's no more dragon, because the dragon has been eradicated as well. Yeah, I love even what you're saying about it's new, but not completely new. It's just mm-hmm. different, because I think that's a call to us as believers to care for and steward the world that we are in today. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the one of the ways I had been reading before is well, it's all, you know, I mean, it's all going to go away anyway. We're just going to go to whole brand new all the new mm-hmm. things. And what I'm hearing you say and what I've been reading and thinking about for, through your book and just other works that I've been reading is well, that probably isn't the case. And back in the garden we were asked to care for and steward the earth. And this is one of the reasons why. In Revelation 22, the beginning of Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem is described like Eden with the tree of life mm-hmm. and 12 different fruits for different months. It's, that's kind of cool. There's this mm-hmm. river flowing down and the gates never have to be shut because there's no one to, no one needs to be protected because everything right. is safe. Yeah, and the and the nations will be healed by the leaves on the tree. So, all these good things are depicted in New Jerusalem. It's a wonderful image. Mm-hmm. Well, and just like with anything, 
not everything is all wrong about even how we perhaps were reading Revelation. The end Mm -hmm. of the story still ends the same way. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. The lamb wins. (laughs) So choose your team wisely. (laughs) I love that. As a way of closing encouragement, I I imagine that there's some people that are listening to this that are still a little bit skeptical. You know, they've been reading this book and they've just heard all the different ways to interpret it. What would be some encouragement for them as they're wrestling with this new framework of reading? I I would say... um... Ask, as you're reading the book of Revelation, what those believers in Western Asia Minor would have picked up listening to this book being read to them aloud. What would they have thought they should be doing and how they should be living? They certainly were not taken away with trying to speculate who might be doing what. They were trying to figure out how to live faithfully following Jesus in their world when it was particularly difficult because there were so few of them and the oppression was so great. And they read this book and they saw the potential of victory by the Lamb that gave them encouragement and hope that someday uh, God's team, is the team Lamb is going to win and we're going to be with them. Yeah, encouragement and hope. And that that's a good closing word. I think revelation shouldn't be, based on what I've read in your book, it should not be something that we get bogged down in all of these predictive questions, but we should be, it should be forming us as disciples of Jesus and helping us find courage and hope to live as we're being invited to live in this world that is is really rejecting the faith. Yeah, it, it, it shouldn't create fear and horror on our part. Mm, it good. shouldn't make us not want to read it. We should see this and say, just like Aslan cracked the stone table and came back to life, so the creation of God is going to come back to life and it's going to sprout all green twigs Green sprouts everywhere, and it's going to be fantastic. We're going to start all over, and it's going to be right. Well, justice is going to come, and everything that has been unjust will be undone and remade. That's why it's a hopeful book, is because in the end, what is right will be accomplished. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't ignore the reality of today. So, no, but we can have hope and courage. So thank you, Scott. This was a really life-giving conversation. I appreciate you making some space for us today. Thank you, Jody. Good to be with you. Well, friends, I'm going to put links in the show notes for how you can find Scott, follow his blog, and get his book. It is called Revelation for the Rest of Us, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. And if you found this conversation interesting, you definitely want to read this book. It was, it's very, very good. So I also just want to take a quick second to thank the team of Life Audio for their partnership with us. And if you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They have shows about prayer and Bible study, parenting, and even this one on scripture meditation and thoughtful conversations. And as always, I do want to thank you again for joining me and Scott today 
on so much more because we really do believe Jesus has so much more to say to us, and we are creating space to listen. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.